It's March the 20th. And hello, welcome to the Science Set Free podcast with myself, Mark Vernon, and Rupert Sheldrake. Now, Rupert, I know you've been reading a new book by Nick Spencer called Atheists, the Origin of the Species. And this has kind of lessons for us almost, I think. It does tell the history of atheism, um, but also tells us something about what we've called the atheist experiment and mm. what we can, as it were, learn from that for, you know, what it means to be human and so on. Um, but what, what, what did you find in the book? What have you found in the book? Well, part of it is the history of atheism, and that I find very interesting because we're all aware of contemporary atheists. Um, but one of the things that came across in the book was how much it's depended on national politics. The history of atheism in France and England and Germany and the US is quite different, for example. Um, and one of the things that I think he makes very clear is that it's largely um, come about as a reaction against um, what people experience as the oppressive power of churches or other religious institutions. Um, and it particular, in France, atheism was particularly extreme because in the 17th and 18th century, the Roman Catholic Church was strongly allied to a highly autocratic uh, monarchy. Um, and the entire thing held together, the monarchy and the church. They supported each other. So if you wanted to overthrow that particularly oppressive regime, uh, it wasn't just a matter of being anti-clerical. You had to be against the entire system. And being an atheist was a very good way of doing it because it really removed any legitimacy from the system. It depended on the church, and if there's no God, then the church itself had no legitimacy. So from the point of view of a revolutionary agenda, atheism, or at least deism, the belief that there's a God who started things off but thereafter does nothing, um, and therefore there's no point in having religion or praying to such a God, atheism and deism became um, an enormously powerful force in France, and based on a very, very emotional reaction, uh, which expressed itself in the French Revolution and the destruction of churches, the execution of priests, as well as monarchs and aristocrats. Um, in Russia, um, it had a similar history, that the Tsarist, the repressive Tsarist regime was closely allied with the Russian Orthodox Church. And again, atheists there became extremely polarised against the system. And it was not so much to do with intellectual arguments about science or the details of arguments for God or creeds, it was a way of rejecting a system. Now, in England, um, it was less extreme because we'd had a Protestant Reformation and lots of mainstream churches, like the Church of England and Methodist churches and stuff, were all against the Roman Catholic Church anyway. So uh, it was no use just going on about the Inquisition and the iniquity of the Roman Church because lots of people who were Christians agreed with, with that. Um, so, in a sense, it led to a much less polarised and much less militant kind of atheism in England. And in the United States, where um, there was a separation of church and state and a great many different churches, and if you didn't like one, you could just join another, uh, the atheist movement hardly got going at all, uh, which is why, until recently, there were so few explicit atheists in the US. That, to me, was one of the most interesting things. It has a lot more to do with politics 
and a sense of oppression and liberation from oppression than it does from actual arguments or even experiences. Yeah, and um, I, running in parallel with that, I found very interesting the idea how different countries or cultures have different kind of intellectual um, atmospheres or environments. So again, in France, uh, where there's a tradition of building great systems from you know beginning, middle and end, and trying to build a system based on atheistic foundations really sort of took off. And whereas in this country, in Britain, um, it was actually British scepticism and wary, wary, being wary of systems in actually figures like David Hume are often regarded as atheists now. Um, but the, their, their very scepticism was as sceptical about atheist system building as it is about Christian system building. Yes. Um, and so there isn't the kind of, again, this sort of funny mix of intellect and emotion and political feeling. Yes. Um, to get things going. To, to, to such a degree, anyway. Yes. The, the, the US story made a lot of sense to me once as well. I remember asking someone when I was in the US once um, why it is that America is such an advanced uh, capitalist culture, but still very religious too. And they said, well, what you have to remember is that when people arrived in America, they had under their arm the Bible. And the Bible was always um, a symbol of freedom because they were fleeing um, particularly European religious persecution. Um, and so it's always got the connotations of freedom and Christianity or, or religion generally in the US, um, unlike in Europe where it had this um, uh, association with being oppressed. Exactly. And in the US also for, for black people uh, trying to become free of being slaves, um, the Bible and its message, particularly in the Old Testament, the journey of the chosen people out of bondage in Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, there was this sense of that story being a story of liberation and freedom, uh, not just for the white settlers, but also for the black slaves, and even today for black people. I mean, uh, there's a very strong emphasis on that Old Testament aspect of the story, which we have much less emphasis on here in Europe. Yeah, yeah. And it brings the story right up to date, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So that even the last chapter even talks about the demise of our most recent wave of prominent atheism, the new atheism, and points out that, well, he argues that, and I think this is convincing, that um, there was always a contradiction at the heart of the new atheism, which was, on the one hand, saying human beings are just like other animals. In Richard Dawkins' famous phrase, you know, we're just the lumbering robots that carry mm. around our genes. But at the other hand, saying, but human beings can somehow rise above this animal state. Um, you know, we alone can um, flee the tyranny of the selfish gene. Mm. Um, but of course, those two things are sort of incompatible. And the rhetoric of we can escape our animal nature um, without reference to any anything transcendent and so on just, uh, you know, un unravels itself. And he argues that's kind of what's happened in the last five years, perhaps, since the height of the new atheism. Yes, and also there's been a kind of critique of it from within the atheist movement. I mean, John Gray, for example, who is a very penetrating philosopher and I think a very clear writer, himself an atheist. Uh, he's not a militant atheist and he's probably the most severe critics of, uh, critic of the new atheism because he sees what they're doing is really taking over kind of Christian ideas about humanity and human liberation and so forth, um, for which there's no warrant in atheism at all. So they've got a kind of Christianity light yeah. um, with uh, secular humanism in many ways its ethical system is a kind of diluted Christian ethics I think it's done a lot of good I mean secular humanism pro arguably achieved more 
than churches did in terms of establishing equality of rights and you know, gay rights and, and liberation of minorities and, and overcoming racism and that kind of thing. Um, it's a very powerful liberating force, but essentially it's taking what was a Christian message about human equality um, and human value in, and, and secularizing it um, and making it into a political movement. But as Gray points out, um, the basis in atheism, there's no basis in atheism for that per se. I mean, the Marquis de Sade and some of the more cynical French atheists, um, and indeed Nietzsche, uh, point out that, you know, if it's just about, if the struggle for life is just about a struggle for life and power, then might is right. Nature favours the strong. There's nothing in nature that sets up national health services for sick animals. Mm. Sick animals just die. Weak animals just get eaten or even destroyed by their own parents. I mean, um, there's, there's a ruthlessness in the natural world which in modern human societies is tempered by a Christian morality or a religious morality in general or secular humanism which takes these same values but uh, but without any supernatural basis or an, any religious basis and uh, Gray's argument and I think Spencer's argument is that um, this is a temporary phase and um, atheism left to its own devices would not actually be able to sustain that kind of social morality yeah it's very interesting because John Gray himself has a book out right about now called The Soul of the Marionette um, in which he um, in his way he, he kind of does again which something which is more common I think on the continent in Europe which is a kind of fearless um, um, atheism that in a way follows the logic of its own argument um, and he Gray particularly argues that what we need um, as atheists is a kind of what he calls a negative capability you know borrowing from Keats's phrase just the capacity to exist in a world where there aren't foundations where there aren't certainties um, and to be able to live um, tolerating that but it's quite a big ask he recognises very clearly in the book it's not actually that many people so it is not actually something that many people when push comes to shove are actually capable of um, he, he's a very interesting figure he, he, he feels to me like an atheist who's actually trying to come up with what you might call a, a sort of uh, a negative spirituality um, that somehow uh, can cope with the full ramifications of, uh, of the atheist worldview yes and to what extent it can be successful, I, we don't know. I mean, it, the, the, a much more popular kind of atheism and, and, and another kind of movement going on is the Alain de Botton type, which is uh, trying to reinvent religion for atheists. Um, and, of course, that happened in the 19th century too with Saint-Simon and Comte in France because they were trying to create a kind of atheist religion. Um, and that's what Alain de Botton is trying to do now, recognizing that people actually need more than a kind of rather arid worldview in which, in which our minds are nothing but our brains, we live in a universe with no purpose. Um, so, in a sense, that's much more likely to be popular than the kind of thing Gray's looking for. Yeah, and, and even, I think, even uh, another project quite similar to that is the Sunday Assembly these uh, um, groups of uh, 
Well, they don't like to call themselves atheists, interestingly, although I think many atheists go along, but um, other people who are a bit disillusioned with church going go along too. Um, and the idea there is, um, again, to use ritual, to use celebration, mm-hmm. to use good works. And what particularly interests me about that is that they're also trying to introduce all this within what you might call a gift economy, um, that um, unlike Alan de Botton's experiments, which you typically have to pay for to go to, um, this is something which, like church, you just walk through the door and they encourage a kind of gift giving to support it. Um, and that's very interesting to me because it does seem to be um, that uh, sort of altruistic feel um, does seem to be the beginnings of a kind of spirituality um, mm. because it it it's uh, you know it it's, it 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 uh, practices you might say the notion that what we receive is best when we give it away again, which mm. of course is a bit of a Christian idea yes. um, that everything's a gift from God and we offer back to God that which we've been given. Um, but doing it in this in this context, and and they talk about actually a, a humanist spirituality. Um, Sanderson Jones, the founder of the one of the founders of the Church Assembly, um, talks about having an experience of this kind of flow of life, um, which he um, appreciates um, going through him, um, and that it's a kind of gift um, that he needs to give back. Um, and in fact, uh, I've heard him talk with um, a couple of Church of England vicars, um, and they came away thinking. Is this really so different at all? Mm. Um, now that I don't want to sort of suddenly say the church assembly are really sort of, you know, theists in disguise, but I suppose what it does point to is a kind of common human spirit that underpins all these things that maybe in our times we're getting more in touch with that direct experience and mm. so a bit of free of the kind of baggage of um, doctrinal creedal statements, which, you know, they're put together for the best of reasons to try and discern and hold these things, but can, you know, get in the way, I think, too. Mm. Yes, I suppose for a lot of people who are um, spiritual but not religious or who think of themselves as agnostic or even atheist, uh, it's not very often based on a close study of Christianity or other religions. It's, it's, it seems to be mainly based on a kind of, well, partly indifference, partly ignorance. In some cases, an emotional rejection of based on their own personal bad experiences, but very often not, very often just part of a kind of default cultural norm here in Europe that educated people are just assumed to be atheists or not go to church. I mean, that's sort of been built into the educational system, that it's the, the standard assumption. Um, and I think for many people that is a kind of barrier, and it means they have a prejudice against uh, religion in general and Christianity in particular. Well, that's another thing which he picks up in the book, which Nick Spencer picks up in the book, where he talks about the origins of recent atheism. And in particular, pointing out that science originally wasn't conceived of as in opposition to Christianity. In fact, a Christian kind of underpinning was necessary, really, for early science to get going, which you read about particularly in the Renaissance figure uh, Francis Bacon, Mm. um, who, um, after the desacralization of the world, the world is there, as it were, left for our investigation mm. um, and he argued that it's because God has ordered the world and given us um, the intellectual equipment to investigate the world around us. Um, this was a, uh, a necessary move to make science seem like a good and honourable and worthwhile thing to commit your life to. Mm. Um, then there's this kind of shift, um, particularly in the 19th century, um, when uh, science and religion are seem to be at loggerheads, largely for political reasons, reasons of moral indignation, I think he argues as well. Yes. 
But I wonder how you feel, where, where you feel we're at in this story now, because this is something which, you know, you obviously have a lot of direct engagement with it now. Um, the, the idea that science and religion are somehow antithetical to each other. Do you think that's shifting once more? Well, the thing is that the practice of science, the investigation of nature um, through the experimental method, is not inherently anti-religious. In fact, as you say, it's the, the two started off together. And the idea that there are universal laws of nature was derived from various theological and philosophical systems. Um, I think what's happened is, since the, the materialist philosophy became the default orthodoxy of science in the 19th century, um, that does create a problem, because materialism is inherently atheistic, as at least most of its usual interpretations. These, this is something we've discussed in some of our previous uh, dialogues. Um, that the, if you have a worldview that says there's no purpose in nature, the whole of matter is unconscious, the brain, the mind's nothing but the activity of the brain, evolution has no purpose or direction, evolutionary creativity is just a matter of blind chance. Um, that does have a, create a worldview which is hostile to almost any kind of religion. And insofar as people identify that worldview with science, then there is a conflict. Um, but as I show in my book, The Science Delusion, Science Set Free in the US, um, this materialist worldview is not science, it's a belief system uh, which has taken over science. And uh, it's quite conceivable that the sciences can move on beyond it. In fact, they're already moving on beyond it. It's, it was established in really between the 17th and the 19th century. Modern science has burst out of this dogmatic straitjacket already, but the dogmas still continue. Um, so I think when we realise that actually we've moved beyond this framework, when we recognise that the nature of consciousness is not simply explained in terms of the brain, that evolution is not simply a matter of blind mutations and cosmic uh, the cosmic evolutionary process, it, 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 if we assume it's purposeless, then that's simply an assumption. We don't know that. It's not proved by science. It's simply assumed by the materialist philosophy. Yeah. Then delinking science from materialism, or, uh, as science moves beyond materialist dogma, um, then I think we enter this much more interesting area, which is the area that you and I have been discussing now in, in a whole series of these podcasts, um, the new situation we find ourselves in. Funny enough, I think there was a, a bit of a, um, a sense of that this morning, on the day in which we speak, there's been a partial eclipse of the sun in the UK. And it was cloudy in the south of England uh, this morning, and there was a nice sense of this twilight um, for about 20 minutes or so around the time of maximal eclipse. Um, but I was watching a bit of the telly as well. And it was very interesting how this um, experience was conveyed on the television. Because on the one hand, there was a kind of materialist science um, sort of thread running through the programme. So this was a great opportunity to collect data. You know, this doesn't happen very often. Various phenomena um, occur around the time of eclipses, and this is a rare chance to gather sort of evidence um, to try and put together um, theories. So quite, quite a sort of straightforward kind of evidence-based approach. But of course, this is a great drama, um, and they were ever more reaching for greater superlatives and adjectives to convey the most wondrous sense of this experience. And you couldn't help but feel that what was going on also was some kind of um, 
well, the word spiritual experience comes to mind. You know, mm. it got dark, it gets quiet, it's quite eerie. Um, there's something a bit spooky about that. Mm. You know, they know what's happening in mm. a materialist sense. You know, it's just that the moon's going across the front of the sun. Mm. And yet there's a kind of tangible, almost energetic shift, mm. um, which um, even, you know, in a cloudy sky, when it got uh, feeling like it was twilight at about 9.30 in the morning, mm. um, this has a very powerful it sort of bodily impact upon you. Mm. Um, and I couldn't help but feel watching this program that although officially they were following a kind of materialist, this is good for evidence collecting kind of approach. Um, there was something far more profound and subtle going on, which was much more about how um, the cosmos informs our experience. Uh, you know, we, we kind of behold the cosmos and it speaks to us um, in a in a way that's as lively as the life within us that wants to go out and measure these things, you might say. Yes, <clears throat> no, I agree. I think the, the, the fact it's on television at all and that the fact that people are interested in it all is not because they're going to be very interested in the scientific data about the temperature of the corona of the sun or uh, the, uh, you know the or solar flares and all that kind of thing because when the data is published in Nature and Journal of Astronomy and that kind of thing, I mean, virtually nobody's going to read it. So that's not really what it's about. It's about the, this primal drama and the feeling we have of the way that our life on the Earth is influenced by the heavens. I mean, it's good that we understand it and that the science is important and it's impressive that we can predict eclipses and all that kind of thing. But um, that's certainly not why people are so engaged and interested yeah i i wouldn't i don't yes that's, that's a good point because i think that what the science can do is it can provide a way into this more spiritual um appreciation of what's going on you I mean you know you get a you know it's going to happen and then when it does happen um you have a sense of how um our lives depend upon these sort of cosmic bodies these cosmic forces which we can predict and can uh, uh, understand to a degree and yet there seems to be something underneath that um, which were connected to them as well. Yes. Um, which I guess, you know, in older world views, um, uh, you know, Dante and the Divine Comedy, looking at the stars and, and seeing um, uh, God's intelligence and wisdom and love, you know, manifest in, in them as much as anything else. There's yes. still something of that going on, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe this uh, atheist experiment, um, which Nick Spencer charts in his book, um, it's been kind of... It's been an interesting experiment, you, know, you might say. We, I, I hesitate that slightly because it's been a very bloody experiment too, which the book explores as well. Well, certainly in the Soviet Union and in Maoist China and in Pol Pot's Cambodia, it's been an extremely bloody experiment. Probably the bloodiest experiment that's ever happened in the history of humanity. Yeah, I mean that you know, noting that. Um, but there's a kind of, there's a sense in which as things uh, you know develop here on. Um, he, he finishes by saying that um, there's a nice irony that atheism is likely to remain because God is back um, and that there will always be the kind of moral indignation and rightly so, you know, that, um, that should be keeping powerful churches and other religious groups, you know, on their toes. Um, that there's definitely a need for that. You get too identified with God and all sorts of horrors can go wrong as well. Um, but I did like the the way that he, he, he conveys this sense of, you know, is... Um, making man the measure of all things, claiming authority, ultimate authority for ourself, um, does it really satisfy? Does it really um, deliver the society which people hope it might do? And the answer basically is no. Mm. And so it would be very interesting to see kind of what happens next. 
Exactly, and uh, what he shows is that its its history is largely to do with reaction against <clears throat> power structures. It's less to do with the truth of atheism. It's much more as a kind of reactive rhetoric, um, and take away that which it's reacting to, and its power and influence declines. And I mean, the rise of the new atheism is clearly linked to the rise of the religious right in the US and the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. That's really the trigger for the wave of new atheism in, in, from 2004 onwards. Um, and as that wave of atheism loses influence, as the atheists fall out with each other and become, uh, you know, it's a less impressive movement than, than it was, and... Um, as the limitations of the materialist view in science become increasingly apparent. Um, I think that uh, it's possible to see atheism as a useful purgative movement. It's a kind of purging fire that can help to act as a critique of religious excess and abuse. Um, but in itself, it's uh, in a sense parasitic upon the religious tradition and and being a reaction against it if it were left to its own devices would have very little to offer. So I think that we can recommend to our listeners, for what it's worth, Atheism, Atheists The Origin of the Species by Nick Spencer as a history but also as a kind of meditation to reflect upon this movement and what it might mean for us and our sense of ourselves. Yes and, and also the way he places it in a historical context and a sociological context I mean, one of the final points I'd like to make is the way he observes that if you look at atheists today in Europe, firstly, almost all of them are white, and secondly, almost all of them are male. Very few atheists in you know other parts of the world, um, because they're coming from a very different historical and social uh, background. So... I think it's a fascinating book and it sheds a, it illuminated the whole phenomenon for me in, in, in a new way. Thanks very much. Thank you.